Our Lord, we thank you that you are a powerful God, that whatever we are facing in our lives, that whatever, um, whatever chaos is going on in the news that we are looking at, Lord, we thank you that we can have trust in you. And now as we open your word together, we pray that you will give us clarity on how you want us to live. I pray, Lord, that in the midst of very busy lives, that we can be very distracted in many ways, Lord, but I pray that in this time together this morning, that you will help clear aside the clutter that is so easily in our minds and help us to focus in on Jesus, on the hope that he gives, and on how we can honor him in everything that we do, everything we say, everything we think, every, everything in our lives, Lord. May we be honoring to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we just proclaim these words, I sing the mighty power of God. And our God is powerful. He is glorious. He is, he is very loving. Yet, when we look at the world around us, it can feel like things are a bit chaotic. It, it can leave us feeling a bit uncertain or even fearful as we look at what's going on in the world, in our nation, or even in our own lives. And it leaves us with that question of, God, where are you? Are you really that powerful? Do you really care about what's going on? I invite you to turn your Bibles this morning to Esther chapter 8. Esther 8. The events in the book of Esther took place 2,500 years ago, but they still have incredible relevance for our lives today in the 21st century. And early on in the book of Esther, let me give you a little bit of background and and also compare it with today's world. Early on in the book of Esther, King Xerxes was throwing an extravagant banquet for his royal officials. And as all the men at that banquet were drunk, the king had what he thought was a great idea. He wanted his queen, Queen Vashti, to entertain them by showing off her beauty. Now, she did not really like this idea very much, so she said, no, I'm not going to do that. And so the king, in his anger, banished her from his presence and said, you are no longer the queen. Now, here in America, uh, we recognize that, that our nation is facing a lot of various political turmoil. It just is, and it's hard at times to know who in politics can we really trust. We have to understand that back then, they had a lot of their own political turmoil as well. So there are definitely connections between then and now, even though 2,500 years separate us. Now, King Xerxes, he needed a queen. So he started the process of finding a new queen using a format that's very much like the TV show The Bachelor. Beautiful young women were gathered from throughout the the Persian Empire and brought to the king. And each one one of them had one night to spend with him in order to convince him that she should be the queen. Now, King Xerxes chose a Jewish woman named Esther, although he did not yet know that she was a Jew. Now, this points to another commonality between then and now. It's the commonality of questionable morals. When you look at King Xerxes, his middle name could be questionable morals. Um, I mean, for one hand, we see here that he had no problem sleeping with tons of different women. That was no problem to him. And he had plenty of other ethical and moral issues in his life as well. But Esther as well. I mean, you look at Esther, she willingly compromised her integrity in an effort to win the king's approval. It's not that much different than today where the moral compass of our society is going haywire. And where many people who claim to be Christians are in fact more influenced by the secular culture than they are by the kingdom of God. 
Now, after Esther became queen, several years passed, and then there was a man named Haman who got very upset at a Jewish man named Mordecai. Haman then took out his anger on all the Jews. I mean, he blew it way out of proportion by convincing the king to issue a decree that all the, all the Jews throughout the Persian Empire should be annihilated. Now, in today's world, if you watch the news, if you're on the Internet at all, it feels like the news is just constantly filled with reports of violence and shootings and terrorist attacks. And it's so sad. It's so scary at times as well, if we're honest with ourselves. But we have to understand that back in Esther's day, as, as the, this decree against the Jews shows, violence was a significant part of their world as well. Now Esther's cousin Mordecai then convinced Esther that she is the only one who has the ability or the chance even to save the Jews. He says, who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. So this causes Esther to finally stand up and to take action. Last week we witnessed a very important step in the process of her plan, and that was when Haman was executed. But that is not yet the end of the story. Now, if there's one truth in the book of Esther that, that sticks out through and through, it's that even when we can't see God, He is there and He is active. Yet despite messy politics then and now, despite uh, the moral degradation of society, despite uh, violence all around our world, God is still there and He is still active. Let's pick up the story in Esther chapter 8 in verses 1 and 2. It says that same day King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. And so here we see the aftermath of Haman's demise. It starts out saying the same day, that, that same day, these things happened. That same day was the same day that Haman was executed. And one of the things that we see happens is that Esther received Haman's estate. Whenever there was a criminal who was condemned, that criminal's property was automatically forfeited into the possession of the king. And the king could then do whatever he wanted with that property. So here, King Xerxes chose to give Haman's property to Esther as a gift. Now, one of the other things we see happening here is that Mordecai was welcomed into the presence of the king. Now, you think about just how, how crazy of a day this was for King Xerxes. And he wakes up in the morning. He thinks he's just going to go to a nice little banquet that Esther's putting on. Ends up that his right-hand man, Haman, gets executed. He ends up finding out that his wife of five years has been holding a secret of the fact that she is a Jew. On top of that, then he finds out that this man, Mordecai, who years earlier had saved his life, Mordecai is actually Esther's cousin and kind of Esther's adopted dad as well. And so now that Esther is, is the queen... That makes Mordecai essentially the king's cousin and kind of the king's father-in-law as well. So, I mean, it's, it's messy, it's crazy. But the king, he finds out that Mordecai is Esther's cousin. And so then he honors Mordecai. Mordecai is able to come confidently and boldly even into the king's presence. 
And so we see that this happens, not only that happens, but then Mordecai also received the king's signet ring. Now, a signet ring back then is very much like a person's signature is today in making something official. You think about when a president signs a bill into law. That, that bill is not the law until he signs it, but as soon as he signs it, it becomes official. Now, back in that ancient world, they didn't use signatures to make things official. Instead, they used a seal created by a signet ring. A signet ring was literally a ring, but it had a special image that was imprinted or engraved onto it. And what would happen when the king would want to make a document official, he would take that ring and he would put some wax on the document. And he would press that ring down into the wax and would leave an imprint of what's on that ring. And that was his seal to make it official. And whoever had that ring carried the king's authority. Now, you would think it would be nice for the king to maintain authority himself rather than just passing this ring on to whoever he wants. But instead, we see earlier in Esther, he hands it off to Haman for a while after Haman is executed. Then he gives it to Mordecai. We'll come back to that a little bit later. But this is a huge honor for Mordecai. And on top of this, in verse 2, we see that Mordecai is then appointed over Haman's estate. Esther is still the one who owns it. She's still the one in control of it. But Haman is the one who is running it on a day-to-day basis. And you can imagine with a man of Haman's stature, that is a very large, significant estate. So we see here how things are beginning to get sorted out. There's been a lot of chaos going on so far in the story, but now Haman's dead. Now Mordecai and Esther are beginning to get the respect that they deserve, but this is not the end of the story. Because there's still a big issue out there with that decree against the Jews. That is still there like a ticking time bomb just waiting for that particular day of destruction to come. The, the, the metaphorical bomb will blow up and kill all the Jews. So that is still out there. So Esther has to take action once again. Let's pick up the story in verse 3. It says that Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended his gold scepter to Esther, and she rose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it is the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? And how can I bear to see the destruction of my family? So here we see Esther's plea. She's already been to the king's presence once and pled with him, yet he did not fully uh, carry out everything that she wanted. So she has to go back to him. And notice the intensity of her request. It says that she pleaded with the king. She fell on her knees at his feet. She's weeping. She's begging him. I mean, what a contrast this is from the last time that she was begging, or that she was there at the king's presence to make her request. That first time she went in there, she went with a sense of fear and trepidation. She was much more dignified. She was much more reverent in the king's presence. Yet here she is displaying the full intensity of her emotions. Now, once again, she is uninvited in the king's presence. That's a very precarious position. But graciously, once again, the king extends his gold scepter, granting her her life, and then she stands to make her request. 
And her request basically sounds like this. If, 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 if she comes up with all these conditional statements, basically grasping for the king's favor. Verse 5 says, if it pleases the king, and if he regards me with favor, and if he thinks it's the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me. I mean, this is a lot of ifs here, isn't it? She's basically putting out all these conditions of, okay, king, if you think these things are true, then do this for me. Now, one of the things she's saying here is, king, prove your love for me. If you regard me with favor, if you are really pleased with me, then do what I am asking. And one of the things I've become convinced of as we've been studying Esther is that even though we may look to Esther as a model of courage and of wisdom at times, we should definitely not be looking to Esther as a source of, of dating advice or marriage advice. I mean, just think about it. I mean, Esther, she has already compromised her integrity and her purity in order to win another man's heart. She's already kept a secret, a huge secret, from her husband for many years and then revealed it at an opportune time. And on top of this, we've seen multiple times, including here in this passage, that she's emotionally manipulating her husband to try to get what she wants. Not a great resource for dating or marriage advice. But that's fine in some sense, because the goal of Esther, the goal of this book, is not to say be like Esther. The goal is to magnify the greatness and the glory of God. And so we see Esther, she's doing the things. One of the things we can say about what Esther is doing is that they are effective. Now, does the means, or does the end justify the means? That's not what I'm saying, but she knows how the empire works. She knows the politics there, and she's playing the empire's games in order, in order to accomplish important goals. And so she makes her request, and the request is to overrule the decree against the Jews. Let's look back to verse 5 and 6. It says, let, she says, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see the disaster fall on my people? So, so, I mean, obviously this is something that she's taken to heart, that she doesn't want to see her people destroyed. And she says, overturn, overrule that decree, King Xerxes. Now notice again, she does not implicate the king. I mean, the king was just as guilty as Haman was of that genocide against the Jews that was proclaimed. He was just as guilty as Haman was. But once again, she does not point the finger at the king. She only points the finger over at Haman, which is much easier to do now that he's dead. But even though she's not pointing the finger uh, of guilt at, at the king, the king is still in a very difficult position. Because according to Persian law, any, any law that is, um, that is put into place under the king's authority can never be revoked. She's asking the king to revoke an irrevocable law. I know it sounds strange. That's the way politics worked back then. Politics then and now can be a bit messy, a bit confusing at times. But let's move on in this passage to see how all this takes place next. Pick up in verse 7. It says that King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, and they have impaled Haman on the pole he set up. Now write another decree in the king's name and in behalf of the Jews, as it seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring, 
For no document written in the king's name and sealed with a ring can be revoked. At once the royal secretaries were summoned. On the 23rd day of the third month, the month of Sivan, they wrote out all of Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the satraps, governors, and nobles of the 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. Kush is where modern-day Ethiopia is. These orders were written in the script of each province and the language of each people and also to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in the name of, the, of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring, and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the provinces of King Xerxes was the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers riding the royal horses went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. So we see here that a new decree is being issued. Now I want us to note, first of all, the king's passivity in this whole process. This is a major theme in the book of Esther. Even though King Xerxes loves shows of power and authority, he loves to get notoriety for himself, he loves fame, he loves glory, he loves wealth, he is very rarely taking responsibility for what's going on in his kingdom. But instead, he just passes off the responsibility to others around him. Someone else that he respects, someone who's high in his kingdom, says, hey, let's do this, king. And the king says, without asking any questions, he says, okay, go for it, and you have my authority behind it. You would think he would have learned from the experience of Haman. Haman had the king's signet ring. Haman came and said, hey, let's destroy this, this whole people. And the king says, okay, fine. He doesn't even ask who the people are. And then that led to this whole predicament with Esther and destroying the Jews and stuff like that. You would think that the king may have learned from that. But he didn't. And once again, he's just passing off authority. Esther and Mordecai are making a request. And the king, he basically just says, yeah, you have my ring. You have my authority. Write whatever you want. Send it out. Do it. I mean, he's passing off authority. He's so passive in this process. I mean, thankfully, for the sake of the Jews... It's going in a good direction, but, but again, the king, he, he's basically showing here he really doesn't care that much about what happens to the people of his kingdom. He only cares about himself. He's certainly not governing in a responsible manner here. So this new decree is going out to save the Jews. It says in verse 11, the king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves destroy, kill, and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their, will, their women and children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. Now, I want to note two things about this decree that goes out. First of all, this is a new decree. It's not simply overturning the existing decree, because remember, according to Persian law, which to me is a strange and actually quite arrogant law, it says that 
any, any decree that's been made in the king's authority can never, ever be revoked. So this means if you pass a law that's not a good law, or if society changes and that law doesn't apply anymore, you can't really revoke a law. You can't say, you know what, let's take that law off the books. Because once a law is on the books in the Persian Empire, it's always on the books. So the only way to try to counteract that original decree against the Jews is to issue a new decree, a counter-decree that tries to nullify the original decree. And so that is what Mordecai and Esther do. So this is a new decree. Verse 8, the king says, No document written in the king's name and sealed with a ring can be revoked. So it's a new decree that is going out in an effort to save the Jews. And this new decree um, is written really with the same terminology as the original decree, to annihilate, kill, destroy, but it's just turned around, so now it's the Jews doing the annihilation, the killing, the destroying. And that's the second thing I, I want to note about this decree. It's, it probably makes us a bit uncomfortable if we really understand it. it. It sounds very harsh. You wonder, why couldn't the new decree simply say, you know what, now the Jews have the right to live peacefully in the empire? <laughs> To us, 21st century Americans, that sounds much nicer. Sounds, sounds just kinder, more, more appealing. But instead, the decree is that Jews have the right to destroy, kill, and annihilate anyone who opposes them. Now, we're going to come back next week and really focus in on this topic and, and how it may make us feel uncomfortable and really what's this all about. But today, I really want to focus in on the celebration that is occurring among the Jews because of this new decree. And so let's read uh, Esther chapter 8, picking up in verse 15, about this celebration. It says that when Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebration. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. So we see this picture of the Jews celebrating. They're celebrating with joy, with feasting, with honor. And I mean, it makes sense. You can imagine their relief. They were under a death sentence. They were powerless to do anything to change that, at least from a human perspective. The date for their destruction had already been set. They could not change their destiny. But now, this new edict had been decreed, and they were free from condemnation. They were free from condemnation. So they are celebrating. Now, it's interesting here in the last verse that I read, verse 17, it says that many others were converting to Judaism. Now, why were they doing that? It wasn't because the Jews were being so kind to them and they thought, oh, I want to be a Jew as well because look how great their God is and look how great it is to be a Jew and stuff like that. That was not the motivation. It was from much less pure motives. They were, they were converting to Judaism out of fear. For it says, in many people of other nations... Other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. They were scared of the Jews. Haman's original decree struck fear in the hearts of the Jews. 
Now, this decree from Esther and Mordecai struck fear in the hearts of everyone else. And I think it's, it's so ironic here that you look at Esther. Esther hid her Jewish identity out of fear. And then when she finally overcame that fear enough to reveal her Jewish identity, then everyone else is so scared of what she and, and Mordecai are decreeing that then they, out of fear, are becoming Jews because they fear the Jews. I mean, how, how sad it is to live in a world where everyone is driven by fear. Everyone is driven by fear. Now, we're going to, like I said, come back to some of the more troubling parts of that passage next week because that's still a very relevant part and it'll be prominent in chapter 9. But again, today I want to focus in on the celebration and the reason for the celebration. The Jews are celebrating, and justly so. I mean, they were condemned to death. Now they are freed to live once again. And the cause of their celebration is what God has done. I mean, interestingly, in the book of Esther, the name of God never once appears. But it's very clear that even when we can't see God, he is there and he is active. Now, Esther has certainly played a very important role. She is essentially God's agent on the ground, to accomplish his purposes. She did not see it for a long time, but, but God was working through her. But God was also doing a lot of other things that, that she could not control herself. But what we see is that God is like this director behind the scenes orchestrating everything to accomplish his purposes. And that's what we mean when we talk about God's sovereignty or his providence, that he, despite the chaos of this world, he is still in control And he's working through everyday circumstances, everyday decisions, everyday people, um, even the messiness of of life to accomplish his purposes. And this can give us great trust in him. And we look at Esther and we translate the, the truths about God from there back in our world. It can help us to confidently proclaim, I sing the mighty power of God. Because even when we live in a world that there is chaos, we still see that God is there and he is trustworthy and he is active. Even when we can't see God, he is there. Now I want to point to another aspect of joy to specifically apply it to our lives today. And that's the Christian's joy. I mean, back here in Esther chapter 8, it was the Jews who were celebrating because they have been released from condemnation. Christians can have the same joy and even more. Now, we recognize that the joy that we can have as Christians, we're commanded to have it. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. But it's not the superficial joy, just pretending like everything's all right, because oftentimes everything's not great in our lives. Many of us face very, very difficult challenges. And and Christian joy does not minimize those things. Instead, it says there's still this deep source of joy through and despite the circumstances. But many people, when they look at Christianity, they don't see Christianity as a, as a source of joy. Many people in our society look at Christianity and think, you know, that's kind of a, more like a straitjacket. It sucks the joy out of life. They're, they're, let me share a couple just kind of examples. One is, I think, more of a joke. I don't think it's a real story, but it's about this, this man walking home from church one day, and um, he sees this donkey uh, sitting there looking at him over a fence, and the donkey has kind of this long, gray face. The man says to him, you must have gone to church today as well. I mean, 
That's how some people view church, of, oh, this is kind of boring, kind of drudgery, get through it. I mean, on a, on a more realistic, true level, Robert Louis Stevenson, the famous author, he once wrote in his journal, I have been to church today, and I am not depressed. As if that is an accomplishment to go through a church service and not leave depressed by what you experience there. I mean, this is the way that many people view church. This is the way many people view Christianity. But Christianity, through Christ, offers a deep, abiding, abounding joy. And the joy comes from the fact that Jesus has overcome sin, evil, and death. That is where the Christian joy comes from. Not necessarily in our circumstances. Because Christians can face just as many difficult circumstances as anyone else. But we receive a joy from the fact that Jesus has overcome sin, evil, and death. And one day he will fully enforce that victory. Now, another way of saying this, in terms more like Esther, is that the gospel is God's counter-decree. See, there is this original decree of death upon humanity. It came from the king of the universe, God. There was this, back in uh, the book of Esther, there was this uh, original decree of death for the Jews, and then there was a counter-decree that came later of life. Both of those came with the same authority from the king. And in our lives, spiritually speaking, there is a decree that comes from God of death. It came in the Garden of Eden. Uh, Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. That is a decree, an irrevocable decree, that the wages of sin is death. It's irrevocable. It can't um, be taken off the table. But there is a counter-decree, just like back in the time of Esther. The counter-decree is the gospel. That God decreed through Christ that there is a way to life, that, that there is a way to nullify uh, the, the decree of death, so the decree of death no longer has power. And this comes, again, through Jesus. This counter-decree I mean, can be seen, for instance, in John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That is the counter-decree against the decree of death because of our sin. And we can rejoice in this. Now, because that decree of death could not be repealed, because it was still in force, someone had to die for justice to be fulfilled. And that someone was Jesus. We look at the cross. The cross displays the power of God. Now, we may think, okay, the cross displays more weakness than power. But listen to how Paul says it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. He says, by, the power, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. This is a display of God's power, that Jesus died as a payment for our sins, and he raised Christ from the dead in power to overcome sin, evil, and death. This was the counter-decree from God. Now back for the Jews, there was a date set for their destruction. And there was also a date set for our judgment. We see this in Revelation chapter 20. John, the Apostle John, uh, in a vision of uh, the end times, he says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. Verse 15, anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown 
into the lake of fire. So we, this time, we see this time where every one of us will stand before God in judgment. That time will come at some point in the future. We are told in Hebrews chapter 9 that all of us are destined to die once and then to face judgment. But the cool thing is, the amazing thing, the joyous thing, is that God has issued a counter decree. That we do not have to be subject to death and condemnation because we can be set free. Listen once more to Paul's words in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. And listen to this idea of the decree and the counter-decree, these two laws, uh, but the law of Christ overcomes the other law. It says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. There is this law, this decree of sin and death. But the law of the Spirit of Christ, this second decree, this counter decree from God, can set us free if we turn our lives over to Him, if we submit our lives to Him by faith. Now, again, we recognize we can have joy. This gives us incredible joy that it's available to us, that sin, evil, and death no longer have the final word. But we still recognize that we face trials in our lives, even on a daily basis. But we can have hope. I think of Psalm 30, verses 11 and 12. Psalmist writes, you have turned my wailing into dancing. You remove my sackcloth and clothe me with joy that my heart may sing your praises and not be silent. Lord my God, I will praise you forever. You have turned my wailing into dancing. You've, you've removed my sackcloth, clothed me with joy, and I will praise you forever. What a privilege it is to be welcomed into God's presence as sons and daughters. Mordecai received the incredible privilege of being welcomed into the king's presence. He was able to come in there with, with confidence. But how much more through the blood of Christ, through, through turning our lives over to him, through faith in Christ alone, can we be welcomed confidently and even boldly into God's presence. That is such a privilege. We're going to close today with a song called Boldly I Approach. I want to read... Uh, the lyrics from how the song ends, because I think it's so appropriate to Esther 8 and to our lives today. It says, This is the art of celebration, knowing we're free from condemnation. Oh, praise the one, praise the one who made an end to all my sin. Boldly I approach your throne. Blameless now I'm running home. By your blood I come, welcomed as your own, into the arms of majesty. Let's pray. Our Father, what a privilege it is to be welcomed in your presence. We thank you, Lord, that you did not leave us subject to that decree of death. We deserve death, especially spiritual death, spiritual separation from you because of our sin. That's what we deserve. That's what we've earned. But we thank you, Lord, that you so loved us, that you sent your Son into this world to die in our place. And I pray that each one of us will receive that gift of new life through faith. Christ. And Lord, we thank you that we get to celebrate your transforming work in people's lives even today. I think of the baptism picking up, coming up in a couple hours here. Lord, we thank you for the eight people who are going to give testimonies to your transforming work in their lives. Lord, we thank you that you've transferred them from death to life, from the old to the new. Lord, we pray that the rest of this day will be a tremendous celebration of, of what you do in people's lives, bring new life. Lord, in all of our lives, from a day-to-day basis, may we live with a sense of joy, even in the midst of circumstances, 
because Jesus, you have won the victory and you passed on to us. We praise you for these truths in Jesus' name. Amen.